Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest was a writer and performer for such cracked classics like After Hours. He co-wrote and starred in Kill Me Now, which I'm a longtime fan of. He's co-founder of the Small Beans Network, co-host of the excellent podcast Kurt Vonnegut, and plenty more. Please welcome Michael Swaim. Hey! Hey, hey, hey. Wow, you painted me into a corner there. Best horror movie of all time. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's up there. But we yeah. went back and forth a little, so there were a couple other options, but it's definitely near the top. Yeah, hey, look, I say it every week, and every week it's the truth. <laughs> sure, I guess so. Truth is malleable, why not? Exactly, I, I, that, exactly. That folds right into the theme of this movie, I think. Oh, it Thanks sure Thanks for does. having me, George. Happy to be here. Yeah, so your Kurt Vonnegut's partner, Alex Schmidt, has mm-hmm. also been on the show, and mm-hmm. in between then and now, I've started my Vonnegut journey in earnest. <gasps> <laughs> nice. So we've already got a ton to discuss with this movie, but first I have to get your thoughts on the way Vonnegut leverages sci-fi and surrealism to create a kind of wry social horror in the same way that Dr. Strangelove does for me. You know, this is part of what appeals to me is, you know, he tells you in advance what he's going to do. And then this swaps surprise for dread, Mm -hmm. which is kind of uh, effective from a horror standpoint as a sustained experience instead of a flash in the pan. Absolutely. And that goes all the way back to right. Like the classic Greek tragedies. It's sort of the idea of at the beginning, someone in a toga comes out and goes this is gonna happen that everyone's gonna die and you go i don't know it seems to be working out well for them <laughs> and then by the end you're like they were right oh yeah I, the thing i dreaded happened and traditionally that's sort of at odds with comedy which is usually based on surprise or a sudden contrast or a turn you didn't expect or taking a word and intentionally using the meaning that you didn't expect it to mean And I think what Vonnegut does so well is fuse those two things into something so unique. Although you mentioned Strangelove, and that's just a great touch point because Kubrick pulls the exact same thing off there. But it's rarely done, and we call it dark satire or whatever. We find different terms for it. But basically the idea of fusing dread, which is the domain of tragedy and horror, and if I'm going to be honest, real life... (laughs) We all live with sort of a a few things, primarily being our inevitable deaths, the deaths of loved ones, illness, pain, that we sort of dread and know inevitably we're going to have to deal with at some point. And I find that it's life is still certainly surprising, but rarely in a way that's cohesively funny. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) And what I think Vonnegut and Kubrick do so well when they choose to, is make dread funny. And that is that is quite a feat. It's difficult. Uh, the image that flashes to me is a great recent example would be the uh, James Franco segment of Billy Scruggs, uh, where, is it Billy Scruggs? The legend of... Buster. Buster, Buster Scruggs. Thank you, Buster Scruggs. <laughs> that's been memefied lately, which is first time when you're about yeah. to hang. <laughs> so funny, and yet so tragic and that's it's rare that you can say so funny and yet so tragic and yet so true and yeah. Vonnegut, <laughs> Vonnegut basically pulls that off line on a line to line basis over and over and over with the density and aplomb of like a great stand-up comedian where it's I mean the opening of Breakfast of Champions where he breaks down like what America is and what (laughs) capitalism and white supremacy are in such a funny way that does not defang the idea that these things fucking suck. You know, that's held aloft with a joke. And man, most humor, they get the same effect, but out of out of exploring taboo topics. 
usually poo-poo, pee-pee, or wieners <laughs> or vaginas. And that's great. That's funny. It's fun. We all have a good time. <laughs> you know, I love a sex comedy and I love, you know, Always Sunny or like you just maniacs yelling at each other, doing bad sure. things. It's, it's hella fun. But Vonnegut does something special, which is, oh, I hate saying it, but he makes you think. <laughs> And something that I discovered very interestingly on our most recent, ep- our most recent two, we did these bonus episodes of Vana Guys that are about sort of adjacent material. And we watched a documentary about him and then read a, a book about the creation of Slaughterhouse-Five. And something that did me well to know, to learn, was that to get that pure, like, black tar heroin condensed <laughs> tragicomic masterpiece, he really did write. So like Slaughterhouse-Five, he wrote over 500 pages that were eventually slimmed down into that tiny novel. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the shorter ones, and none of them are that long. Exactly. And some of his chapters are one, two pages, and it's this intense condensation process that I, I always sort of feared Vonnegut or resented him as someone who also loves to write speculative fiction because it feels like he can just open his mouth and spout gold like wisdom like george carlin level masterful wisdom and to learn that he really had to work at it and went through 500 pages of bullshit and then narrowed it down to 120 pages of pure gold oh that was a relief okay so there are no gods striding among us everyone is still just a meat machine which i don't know that comforts me sure you gotta put the work in Mm -hmm. i think in that documentary specifically there's a moment where they're like on the train and he says like i prefer laughing to crying because there's less cleaning up afterward but like Mm -hmm. on his face you're like oh man he's he's hiding so depressed (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) the sad clown in full force exactly i I think that that is exactly what he does so well like you said is this like if you ain't laughing you're crying kind Mm -hmm. of thing and all you can do is is find joy in the interim between birth and death (laughs) exactly but the movie we're talking about today is is 2009 Lars von Trier movie Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Lars is a Dutch filmmaker who's certainly known for pushing the envelope and people's boundaries in general. Takes a lot of influence from August Strindberg. Are you a fan of Lars's films in general, or does this one just stand out for you? I am a fan of Lars in general. I liked The House That Jack Built a lot more than everyone I know liked. I love it. that movie. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a really interesting essay, basically, on himself and his his own work. Mm-hmm. I will say, much like Vonnegut, and in fact, I think it's totally appropriate you brought up that whole arc because, first of all, everyone is a meat machine becomes painfully clear in Antichrist. But also, I think the core of Antichrist is setting up the inevitable tragedy of and pain of living mm-hmm. against the idea that we try to we try to not do that. We try to live with it with equanimity. Um, Defoe's character is a therapist in this and is so eloquently the voice of reason and the idea of reason and the idea that it's worth it to try and stay calm. Life can still be enjoyable. Let's let's move ahead, you know, keep calm and carry on. And uh, there's only two characters arguably in the film and it's he and she and she played amazingly by Charlotte Gainsbourg is almost the opposite embracing the idea of no life is a cavalcade of nonsense and then you die like (laughs) all you should be doing all the time is shrieking because this existence is a torturous (laughs) hellscape and in some ways it is (laughs) they're both right yeah but generally I do think Lars and Kurt have an issue with women. They see things from a very masculine point of view. Kurt often just doesn't give female characters 
their full due or that it doesn't really toss to their perspective often sort of like how a lot of sitcoms will fridge the female character or the female character will be the wet blanket who's you know always saying oh guys you're crazy (laughs) settle down you boys (laughs) yeah so with that caveat which i do think is a legitimate thing that's thrown at trier i think he's fucking brilliant (laughs) (laughs) and i agree with him in i think 2005 or 2009 he's described in an interview antichrist as his one masterpiece and I think that's pretty close to true. I, I like a lot of Von Trier. I like Nymphomaniac a whole lot. As I said, I like House of Jack built. But I do think Antichrist is something special. It's really, really good. So I personally have limited exposure to his work. I like mm-hmm. what I've seen. The house that Jack built is certainly um, foregrounded in my mind. But uh, I thought Matt Dillon was also really great in that. Yeah. He's been doing some like weird stuff lately Love that I'm into. It. Yeah, He did a short film for Yorgos Lanthimos called Nimic that I thought was really cool. Oh, I'll check it out. Yeah, so there you go. But Antichrist is the first of the Depression trilogy, which really lets you know what you're in for. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Lars had started writing Antichrist years earlier, and the original script idea was to create a movie where the reveal was, what if the world was created by Satan, not God? But a producer revealed this to the press, and he furiously delayed the movie to rewrite. That said, the idea of evil being ascendant as opposed to good does seem to permeate the movie, especially towards the end. Yeah. And it got held up even further because at the beginning of 2007, Lars's depression had gotten so severe to the point of checking into a Danish hospital for treatment. And he genuinely thought that the boss of it all, his previous film, might wind up being his last movie because this would just never see the light of day. Mm. And when he emerged from the hospital, he said he felt blank like a sheet of paper and still terrified of himself. And so Antichrist became a form of therapy for him. Not the content, but the very act of making a movie, of proving that he still could do it, he said. Mm -hmm. That said, it does kind of represent a shift in his style. It was definitely the most ambiguous to date and also flies pretty significantly in the face of the Dogma 95 rules that he developed with Thomas Vinterberg, recent Oscar winner for another round. And the intent behind this movement was to refuse technical gimmicks through the vow of chastity, 10 rules to follow and thereby purify filmmaking. Big air quotes from me on that one. (laughs) It's a little self-serious. It's like, look, it's just, it's a certain way you can make a film. It happens to be cheap, which is a benefit. Mm -hmm. And it keeps you honest. And it's it's sort of like how, I mean, when I was starting out in filmmaking, we do these 48-hour film festivals where the gimmick is, right? You only have 48 hours. It's five minutes long. You have to say this line somewhere (laughs) in the script to prove that you really just did it in 48 hours. You know, restraints often inspire creativity. Sure. But I don't think, I think the dogma people get a little self-serious about like and that makes the purest film it makes a type of film and it's fine you know if if that sparks it for you that's great Mm -hmm. i think that my favorite film to come out of the movement though has got to be festin have you seen the celebration Festin? no i haven't Ooh, very intense check it out yeah definitely check it out you're making me realize that I'm missing a piece of the Depression trilogy because I haven't seen Melancholia, Ooh. which is a big blind spot for me. A bunch of my friends, that's their favorite one of his. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, I've heard They love things. it. And I really like uh, Kirsten Dunst. I think she's great. Yeah. So I think it's interesting he said that, well, with Dancer in the Dark, he said, I was trying to make a musical and I failed, and the result is Dancer in the Dark. And with Antichrist, he said, I was trying to make a horror movie and I failed. I don't think he failed, but, <laughs> uh, but it's interesting to know he thought of it that way. Just yeah. like it's, it's interesting to me that Charlie Kaufman describes Synecdoche, New York as his attempt to write a horror movie. Right. I'm like, that's very odd insight into that film. Yeah, it is interesting. And especially this desire to 
like be like, oh, I want to make a horror movie, even if he thinks that he failed, is so antithetical to what he had been doing. You know, the the ten tenants uh, explicitly say no genre movies, along with no uh, SFX or filters, strictly handheld camera, no non-diegetic music. All of these things exist within Antichrist in a way that feels yeah. very deliberate to me. I think there's something like 80 VFX shots, which is not a ton, I mean, not compared to the kinds of movies we make today or your Marvel films or whatever, but for a dogma guy, it, it's like, 80 special effects <laughs> shots? What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it is mostly shot on location with only one day of interior shooting for visual effects with green screens, mm -hmm. which made the special effects that they did use difficult to blend. But it, it it's worthwhile because I think that they really did a great job. Forty five hundred hours worth of work going into the special effects, they said. Wow. I have no handle on whether that's a lot or a little, but it's sounds a, like it's, a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> The camera work is also atypical for him. Uh, usually he'd hold the camera himself, but he said he didn't have the mental strength to direct and do this too. So they experimented. There's some really neat simulated handheld work, especially when that then transitions into smooth zooms, which I thought was really rad. Mm -hmm. And they also used thousand frame per second cameras to get slow-mo shots that during the, the film test needed so much power that they were burning out generators. <laughs> wow. Yeah. They also had some trained forest critters, which are fun. Each, each chosen from one of Lars's shamanic journeys, although the crow is actually a raven because they're easier to train. So there you go. What tell, Do you know more about these shamanic journeys? Do you mean within the film or Lars himself went on? Lars himself. Went on these like yeah. rituals or something? Yeah, he said that uh, it wasn't a drug thing, that he, uh, it was more like just a meditation, like a guided meditation thing. Okay. And he would see these animals and uh, and they would be the ones who would like kind of lead him on his journey into himself. Oh, almost like a therapy session. Yeah. There's a field of therapy called EMDR where they'll, they'll have you create a totem or a, some kind of creature. Yes. It could be a fictional character. My partner does EMDR and their totem is Gandalf. There you <laughs> and then that, that thing will guide you through a meditation to an area. And of course in this movie, he, for, uh, he, guides she through the idea of becoming one with nature melting into the grass oh yeah and then as we find out that to she nature represents satan and all that is evil it's like oh maybe that wasn't the right meditation <laughs> for them maybe that's just going to make things worse and indeed it does indeed it does <laughs> <laughs> originally eva green was supposed to play she but mm -hmm. her management basically refused, and they trapped it up in legalese, and so it, it went to Charlotte Gainsbourg instead. She is the daughter of Serge Gainsbourg, famous uh, mm -hmm. French actor and uh, singer, and he was also just in a, a movie that I watched recently, and, and uh, the talent is hereditary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she kills it. Yeah, she really does. And she wasn't anywhere near where they were filming, and she didn't know Lars, only his films, but she was really eager to work with him, she said. And she said uh, she honestly felt like the first meeting didn't go great. He was, quote, nervous and shifty eyed. <laughs> so uh, so her guard went up and she wasn't as expressive about her desire to work with him as she might have been. But he chose her nonetheless, promising that if she was willing to trust him, he wouldn't show anything that she'd be embarrassed by or regret which she feels is the case, including taking steps to work together to find a costume for the semi-nude scenes, which made her feel comfortable, keeping it stripped down for, for the crew while they were shooting these uh, many 
explicit scenes, working with her just to make sure that she felt okay with the with the movie, which I think is uh, good for him. Yeah, it's very boldly, and I think you can achieve that kind of thing if you're a caring director and... When there's just two characters, it certainly probably makes it easier. It's not like Crank where you're boning in the middle of the street <laughs> and there's random extras that just got hired today standing around. But they're nude a lot. <laughs> they're nude a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, and it has meaning. You know, it's not it's not gratuitous in the sense that it's there for the titillation of it. It's to sort of make you meditate on the idea that humans are just piles of flesh and bone and i think it achieves that definitely willem dafoe was cast as he they'd worked together on manderley previously and he hadn't heard anything from lars in a bit so he asked his agent what he was up to got the script lars said hey you want to do it and he said sure easy as that yeah seems like he's down for anything then he'll green goblin you know he'll whatever lighthouse Uh, (laughs) that's a classic one for me one for them i hadn't watched antichrist again in a while it's not the kind of movie you throw on every week or whatever and i forgot that he crushes a raven with a rock like repeatedly over and over (laughs) and i really wanted to cut that against pattinson and the lighthouse smashing the seagull i just think that'd be a great little thing to have the two of them have uh have a lot in common bad luck to kill a seabird So I watched this on the Criterion channel, and they had a ton of special features and stuff. And uh, I actually watched it again with the commentary. And Willem Dafoe's interviews at Cannes really were making me laugh. Because first of all, he talks about how he's attracted to the darkness. He says, I like these movies. This is the kind of movie for me. <laughs> so I was like, hey, good for him that he's he's being like, yeah, I, I like these adult movies. I have no problem with the other ones, but this is speaks to my aesthetic. Also, it's rare the guy who will say, because famously, they used a prosthetic penis for this that's smaller than Willem Dafoe's real penis because Lars von Trier thought it, it was distractingly large. <laughs> good to know about Willem Dafoe. Hey, good on you, man. But also... I think it's rare the actor who will be like, that movie where they made my penis seem smaller than it really is. I love that movie. That movie's for me. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, they uh, they used um, porn star stand-ins for the actual sex scenes and everything. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he, in an interview with The Guardian, said, it's too big. And they were like, you mean it wouldn't fit on the screen? And he was like, no, people were just shocked. <laughs> like, All right. <laughs> Some Dirk Diggler action, yeah. Yeah. But Willem also said in these interviews, in a very David Lynchy fashion, Uh, When asked about the meaning, he said that people should put some work in and try and interpret it themselves, that the movie is the explaining and asking them to do it is conservative and deadening. So not mincing words. Yeah, I do think it's it takes some work, but not that much. The elements are few and simple. And I do believe he's right in the sense that even though here we are on a podcast and uh, if we get into it, I'm happy to explain what I think it means. (laughs) I don't think Lars is ever trying to keep secrets per se. It's not inscrutable. You can definitely figure out at least what the themes are or what the basic gist of it is. Definitely. And, you know, when they asked him the same question, he, he said, truthfully, I can only say that I was driven to make the film, that these images came to me and I did not question them. My only defense is, forgive me, I know not what I do. And uh, then he laughs a little bit and he continues, I really am the wrong person to ask what the film means or why it is as it is. It's a bit like asking the chicken about the chicken soup. So there you go. (laughs) 
That's Von Trier, not Defoe. Yes. It yes. sounds like Von Trier. Yeah. <laughs> Willem said that the character of he was a challenge. Uh, he actually had to fight with Lars to tone down the signaling that he was a jerk because it was very clear that Lars didn't like the character. And uh, he said that Lars had also rejected exposure therapy, but Willem couldn't let that influence him because he needed to believe in it. Plus, the constant actor struggle to have jargon feel real and knowledgeable without seeming stiff. You know, he had a lot of these little bits that uh, had to play into this role. That's fascinating to me because the she character from through a modern lens, uh, let's say through a non avant garde lens or a mundane lens, almost seems to have borderline personality disorder, or they call it atypical grieving in this. And the he character, I see the little hints that he's a jerk, but because she is so unreliable, just her word that, oh, you're so damn arrogant, you're a bastard, doesn't necessarily convince you that he is. (laughs) Um, (laughs) He's a little overbearing, but at the end of the day, I would say to your average Joe on the street, He's the voice of sanity and reason, and he's trying to help his wife overcome tremendous grief. The only thing he could really be accused of is being slightly domineering. It's interesting to know that Lars considers he a jerk. Yeah. And it makes total sense, because I do think, especially when you know that it's about, or at least in one form, was about Satan ascendant, and the fact that, this is a classic question we ask, right, is, is are humans innately good or innately evil? And Lars seems to believe repeatedly in his films innately evil we're animals we're brutal like nature is brutal we do what we want to do to get what we want we'll fuck anyone that gets in our way and i don't want to believe that so (laughs) so i think he seems like an island of sanity like i'm rooting for he to to be able to bring charlotte bring she i shouldn't say charlotte but bring she to a place of equanimity that's fascinating so like i could have guessed that lars von trier I I did read the quote where Lars says, I identify more with she than with he. And I'm like, of course you do. You're a flippin' weirdo who (laughs) is very dark and and filled with angst and horror and depression. So that makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, it's interesting to know that Willem wanted to tone it down. Because I'd say in the finished film, he comes across as largely justified or usually he does what's reasonable. But I think the film is sort of an indictment of the idea that human reason is worth anything like that's one of the messages of the film is to look at this crazy like all around us nature thrums with madness and death they they use the image of an oak tree which seems so passive and peaceful to survive it has to drop thousands and thousands of acorns over hundreds of years and it only will propagate once every hundred years only one acorn will turn into an oak tree and when you think about it that way or one way to look at it is the life the thing that we see as order which is taking random matter and turning it into a life a tree it takes the deaths of thousands and thousands and thousands of things that could have lived so really the fact that there's any life at all is just sort of a side effect of this churning of chaos and madness and so i think lars would say he is wrong to try to impose reason and order on that and say we can stay calm we can be safe we can be well it's almost surprising that lars subscribes to any form of therapy reminds me of Herzog, who thinks therapy is, he's sort of anti-therapy because he says, your brain's like a haunted house. It becomes less interesting if you try to look in all the corners or light it up. Let it be a spooky haunted house. And I don't know who's right. I just love absorbing different artistic points of view. So I'm not 
saying I agree with Lars that humans are evil and chaos reigns and we're all doomed, <laughs> but I'm along for the ride. I'm into seeing through his eyes for an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah, I think it's you know very appropriate that you bring up Herzog because this movie really called to my mind uh, the famous documentary Burden of Dreams, where it's about Herzog making uh, the movie Fitzcarraldo. Mm -hmm. And the movie and the documentary are both fantastic, but there's a moment, which I am going to slightly edit for brevity and clarity, in which he says about the environment they're in, which is a rainforest, so just a large, dense forest. Mm -hmm. Kinski always says it's full of erotic elements. I don't see it so much erotic. I see it more full of obscenity. It's just... Nature here is vile and base. I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course, there's a lot of misery. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they sing. They just screech in pain. You take a closer look at what's around us and there is sort of a harmony. It's the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. And we, in comparison to the articulate vileness and baseness and obscenity of all this jungle, we only sound and look like badly pronounced and half-finished sentences out of a stupid suburban cheap novel. We have to become humble in front of this overwhelming misery and overwhelming fornication, overwhelming growth, and overwhelming lack of order. Even the stars up here in the sky look like a mess. There's no real harmony in the universe. We have to get acquainted to this idea that there is no real harmony as we have conceived it. But when I say this, I say this all full of admiration. It's not that I hate it. I love it. I love it very much, but I love it against my better judgment. Hmm. Yeah. So I think that that's really, I mean, ties and right into this movie. One of the, I think potentially Willem Dafoe's last line in Antichrist is, but there's no such constellation. So that's interesting resonance with the quote you just read. He's looking at the stars and seeing them change, right? Which should be impossible. So by the end of this film, I think it definitely lands on the side of, he also says in the movie, your thoughts are distorting reality not the other way around and i think he's proven wrong like <laughs> in within the within the reality of the film reality is malleable you know yeah. there's the foreshadowing moment where she says some witches could scream and bring forth a hailstorm she does that later she yeah. certainly seems to really be a witch by the yeah. end <laughs> And yet it, that sits with the idea that at the end of uh, Willem sort of stalks through the forest and there's all these faceless ghosts of women in 16th century garb, who I interpret to be the people that she was writing her thesis on, meaning all the women who were oppressed by toxic male supremacy back in the day and, and the sort of idea of women as part of original sin. We have to find witches. We have to kill women and burn women. And it's sort of that whole legacy of oppressive murder and misery we're almost along for the ride with she's struggle between thinking that's a tragedy that women were treated that way and against her better judgment she in certain moments believes no women are evil women are part of original sin so are men by the way but yes i am a witch i can call for the hailstorm <laughs> genitals are evil and must be destroyed you know <laughs> oof we're seen. We're seen. Oof, anyway. oof is right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I'll tell you, the scene everyone talks about with the, um, pardon my French, coming blood mm -hmm. is not what gets me. It's the it's the female castration shot. Oh, my oof. God. I oh mean, my God. it's as direct as it could possibly <laughs> yeah. be. <laughs> yeah. And it calls to mind that, what's is it weird to say it feels tasteful to me? Because it feels used for a purpose. Like, mm -hmm. I can't, rather than something like hostile, where they're like, can you believe we cut this dude's balls off with a cleaver? <laughs> can you believe it? 
doesn't that shock you? Yeah. With Antichrist, I get much more the feeling that he's saying, no, seriously, you know, right now in modern day in parts of the world, there are women being castrated against their will. This yeah. is real shit. This level of misery is is real in a lot of people's lives. Maybe not yours if you are lucky enough to be watching this film from the safety of your little bubble, but look at the jungle, Herzog <laughs> would say, right? Like, Or look at the fact that any animal in nature, there's a high chance that it dies by being eaten alive. Mm-hmm. Like That's a very common way to die. <laughs> That's yeah. so awful. <laughs> From our, the veil is so thin between the idea that we, as a human society, have imposed order on the world and the idea that, no, the world will push back with disorder and insanity and obscenity and fornication. There you go. Uh, yeah, love it. Yeah, I think um, he certainly earns his reputation as a provocateur, but I think that unlike a lot of exploitation films, plenty of which I am a fan of, mm-hmm. it's not senseless it's not just shocking you for the sake of shocking you as you say this is all put in here for a a purpose it all is working towards the larger story and and uh, message that it's trying to communicate which i think does help to create that and is in reference to something he truly believes about life it's Mm -hmm. really a part of his worldview it's not disingenuous i guess which is fine it's also fine to be like you said there's exploitation shock films where if i'm in the right mood i can still watch it and go whoa (laughs) That was over the top, but it's different with Lars. Lars is trying, for better or worse, he means it. Mm -hmm. The film shot on precarious footing. Every day, Lars was unsure if he'd be able to actually make it to set. He threatened time and time again to just direct from inside his trailer with a monitor, although it never actually got to that point, thanks to the support of the cast and crew. And the two actors tried scenes from every angle, they said. They really explored their options and created silences, with Charlotte saying Lars's direction is what shaped the performances so effectively that they were clay in his hands. Hmm. And for his troubles, Lars was booed, laughed at, and yes, even applauded, a.k.a. the triple crown at Cannes. Yeah, a lot of people walked out, is my understanding. Yes, and uh, it even extended beyond the screening to the press conference the next day, where he was booed yet again and the recipient of extremely hostile questions. He was also given an anti-award by an ecumenical jury at Cannes that rewards spiritual values for what they deemed to be the most misogynistic movie possibly ever. But Lars pushed back on this, saying that all of his characters are a part of him, and that he, like you said, identifies greatly with Charlotte's character more more than he. Plus, in my opinion, this movie is about misogyny, not endorsing it. I agree with that. I think it's just a... It's a it's an overview of his entire oeuvre sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I occasionally question whether, because he's very interested in misogyny, mm-hmm. and he always says, well, this is exploring misogyny, not endorsing it. That's his line all the time. <laughs> sure. And uh, there's just a point where you go, yeah, but you sure talk about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like Dogville, I don't know if you've seen that. It centers on a very upsetting rape scene. And yeah. There's just a type of storyteller who i think thinks of rape as an abstraction that represents disorder or the use of force generally Mm -hmm. and i don't know i live in a time and place and social bubble where i try to extend my empathy as far as it can go and sometimes it's just it's just hard to take and hard hard to take 
not only in the mundane way where you're like seeing someone be castrated on camera is hard to take but hard to take where you start to go like is this guy on the up and up is this okay <laughs> does he have a, a chip on his shoulder against women or does he fear women or think of women as the other yeah and i don't know the answer to that i obviously have not written Lars von Trier off I think <laughs> I love the movies so yeah I, I haven't like landed on that side of the equation but it's worth thinking about no one's perfect as I said on Vana guys we found ourselves repeatedly saying oh, the female characters kind of shoved to the margin mm-hmm. that's not ideal sure but it's also not enough to make me set you know write Vonnegut off for God's sake definitely yeah, yeah I think um I was a little nervous about this movie at the end of it where I was like is this Lars is like, is does he feel this way for sure? Guaranteed. The commentary really helped me kind of get to the perspective of like, at least for this movie, you know, granted, like I said, limited pool, to, the sample pool to pull from in terms of the rest of his movies. It made me feel okay about being like, yeah, this this is not him being a misogynist. That's how it came across. Possible I'm being fooled, but uh, you know, it, it was a, uh, it was. He seemed very uh, pleasant on me. <laughs> I I think the booing at festivals has got to be. That's a real basic interpretation. I do think the booing is largely people responding to just, that was very naked and violent. (laughs) I don't like that. Much more than it is a sophisticated take on whether it promotes misogynistic agendas. I think Lars is clearly without argument an artist trying their best to represent their view of the world and and he means it Mm -hmm. you know but he gets a lot of flack just because we live in a pretty puritanical society where people are like i don't like that you put that in my eyes and i'm like fair enough but you don't gotta (laughs) boo the guy he's trying you make this movie this is a hard movie to make Yeah, Charlotte was she. She said she was disappointed in the quote shockingly retrograde audience at uh, yeah, at Cannes for real. But it did make money. It made seven point four million on the, at the box office on its three point four million dollar budget, with the cast and crew laughing that the audience was more accepting than the critics. Yeah, if they had, if it come out in the era of Rotten Tomatoes, it would be one of those twenty seven percent critic <laughs> score, eighty five percent audience score, and you just got to ride that high. Exactly. <laughs> And it was also successful in the eyes of Lars, and that's what matters, really, because his final thoughts at the end of the commentary were, I'm pleased I'm still alive. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah, and he's not a guy who's generally happy to be alive, so that's a good sign. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so to get into the actual plot of the movie, I love right from the start, you get these cool chalk title cards, the watermelon colors really make it pop. Mm -hmm. It's very fun. And then... It starts off with the black and white scene of our two main characters, he and she, having sex in the bathroom. Portrayed as intense to the point of myopism, uh, the two of them focused on nothing but the feelings and the person in front of them. And as you say, uh, yeah, there's the, the penis stand and everything, but it is very explicit. Uh, you know, this this is, they're not shying around the sex that's happening in this movie. Right. And as the scene unfolds, there's also a child in the house. His toys include statues labeled pain, grief, and despair. Classics. I remember playing with those in my sandbox. <laughs> and I also noticed on second watch that you can see his shoes are flipped. Right. In, in, in front of the crib, which I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Consistency. <laughs> the little boy named Nick, the only character with a name, mm-hmm. climbs out of his crib He pushes pain, grief, and despair to the side. He walks to the window, blown open by the winter winds, and while looking at the snow, falls right the heck out. Now, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this opening, how they handle the death and everything. For me, the style of the intro 
is as intense as the action, which helps. And the movie is further helped by the fact that the dummy that they threw from the window kind of looks like a dummy, since there's no flailing or anything. It helps to divorce you from the reality of it a bit while still communicating the idea, but it is still kind of a trial by fire. There's explicit sex and child death in the first six minutes. I think it does a really good job of kind of uh, sorting out the people who will or won't be interested in this movie. Absolutely. And uh, even in the title itself, Antichrist is written, the T is sort has a hoop on the top to sort of represent the female, the symbol for femaleness. So you it there it's not mincing words at all i I, people talk about it or i've heard people talk about it as hard to access and i'm like i don't know it's pretty straightforward and clear (laughs) like women are evil is the topic not necessarily saying that lars agrees with that but that's the topic Mm -hmm. and it is historically definitely a belief that many have harbored it's woven into the bible you know the idea of original sin is foundational to our society if you believe that we're a christian society and it's got the slow-mo the opera it's black and white i do think all these things sort of help distance us i didn't i don't find it too too traumatic i think it's a fine opening yeah yeah Uh, and then this gets us into chapter one grief Mm-hmm. Still strictly non-diegetic sound happening. Uh, he is weeping at the funeral, but she is walking silently until she collapses. And she wakes up in the hospital. It's a month later, and she's being diagnosed with an atypical grief pattern. She's feeling guilty about the death. And he is a therapist. He disagrees with both her treatment and the diagnosis, feeling that she's being over-medicated. And she asks him to just trust others to be smarter than him for once. Mm-hmm. Again, sort of laying this groundwork for the conflict between the two of them, him as the overbearing rationalist and her as as someone who is more willing to kind of go with the flow, trust instincts, uh, and, and all that jazz. Even when those instincts are unreasonable or irrational, because mm-hmm. she'll say, in one moment to the next, she'll say, it's my fault that our baby died. And he'll go, no, no, I'm, I'm complicit too. And she'll go, no, you're not. It's my fault. A minute later, she'll be like, it's all your fault that the baby died. (laughs) And then later in the film, she'll even say, Nick, the baby. Nick was a bad kid. Like, uh, he could have been there for me more. I'm Mm. like, you're blaming the dead kid for for its own death? So she really is just instinctively working from however I feel right now. That's my truth right now. Yeah. Uh, You know, the opposite of the rational, reasonable, let's all be calm key. Right. And uh, he does not uh, agree to let others be smarter than him for once. He insists that she return home and that grief is just a natural, healthy reaction, not something that you can just remove and go on living. And that he's equipped to help her through it and she'll be fine. Right. Yeah. They briefly touch on the ethics of treating your own family, which is to say you should not. Uh, But his (laughs) ego, but his ego clouds his judgment just as she sees. And also, as the movie goes and he continues to push her. In these, uh, in these therapeutic sessions, based on where it ends up to me, and knowing that that Lars really didn't like uh, he, mm-hmm. it seems possible to me that he does blame her for using her, quote, womanly wiles to seduce him, and, and, and uses this as a way to torture her even subconsciously. All of this exposure therapy and everything is really him kind of lashing out at, at her because he does blame her, even if he won't admit it to himself. Mm. Or never, yeah, never expresses that right in the film. Yeah, there's a cool shot as the camera zooms into the flowers on the bedside. Easy to apply the water browning as the dead flowers putrefy and begin to indicate their same interior rot on the outside as well onto our couple. 
Right. The camera is all up in their grills as they come home and she dumps out her pills in the toilet with kind of a catty look on her face. Seems like she's trying to punish him and say, like, you wanted me to feel it? Then fine, I'll feel it. Mm -hmm. But she starts to sob and say it hurts and she wants to die. This is the first emotions that we've seen from her since her orgasm. Mm. And there's no way around it, he says. He warns her it's going to get worse before it gets better. And she starts to accuse him of always being distant from her and the baby. Uh, Presumably, this is on her mind since he's not demonstrating grief anymore and feels comfortable treating her instead of dealing with his own issues that surely would spring for this. I think it's possible he's projecting and using this as a way to distract himself from that grief. That's right, yeah, I think so. But it's also certainly understandable why she'd wonder how it can hurt her so badly and seemingly not affect him at all. I think this scene is really brutal. You know, she says, maybe I'm not supposed to talk about this, but it does all come tumbling out without any real hesitation. He does everything that society would expect that is appropriate. That's his reason for being. So he cried at the funeral. He's done Mm -hmm. with that now. And I think that's why his negative trait is not it's specifically arrogance and i that's brought up repeatedly and i think that's sort of you know a, a handy metaphor for the very notion that we as humans can apply our big powerful minds to nature and master it is the height of arrogance and i sure. think that's what lars probably finds unlikable about he the the idea that he's like the unthinkable unfathomable death of your own child i can think my way through that no problem <laughs> <laughs> that is that comes off to Lars as incredibly arrogant. Yeah, I think again, kind of tying in Vonnegut, it does feel a little like Galapagos, where Kurt is like, brains suck. Having like a big brain that can think and feel all this stuff is like the worst thing that could happen to us. Right. And then uh, most of our or a fair chunk of us have brains with, as Vonnegut would say, bad chemicals sloshing around. Exactly. It doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. A specific example of what she's talking about is the previous summer when she and Nick went to a place called Eden. Again, very easy to sort of read into that. Not subtle. (laughs) (laughs) Where she was going to write her thesis. And he says he left her alone at her own request so she could write in peace. But she gave up and he didn't even know that. So clearly there is an element of truth to this that, you know, he didn't even ask like, hey, how'd your writing go? Right, he's not very involved in her life, yeah. She says the topic felt glib while she was up there, or even worse, a lie. And he can't know what that's like, she says, and then she smooches him, kind of pressing forward, doesn't want to really talk about it. And we get these scary pale white trees at night, just a lockdown shot of the terror of night in nature, and then suddenly a blinking eye back and forth, gulping Adam's apple, twitching fingers, all kinds of jittery, out-of-focus close-ups, these really awesomely done anxiety dreams, uh, done with what he called the lens baby, until she wakes up panting. Uh, the lens baby is a, a rubber thing holding the lenses so you can distort it and like uh, shake mm-hmm. it around like that. These, these anxiety dream sequences are very intense and, and powerful to me. I think that they do a great job of communicating that stress. Yeah, that's the other thing about Lars is, aside from the themes as they would like read on paper, the visuals are brilliantly from the gut and phantasmagoric in a way that's like hard to elucidate with just words and, mm-hmm. and, and Lynchian in that way. Lynch has such a talent for going like, here's an image that makes you feel unsettled. How, <laughs> I, why? I don't know. I can't give you the math of it. Well, how'd you think of that image? I don't know. It just came to me. <laughs> I'm thinking of the travel montage being just trees whipping by and like a screaming face. Just pops up. <laughs> yeah, it's just, 
just good just good to look at uh, the film is beautiful in its way yeah definitely you know that it, that moment in particular friggin exorcist pazuzu style just a yep. couple of frames and it does these these lynchy moments you know i think of when um in in firewalk with me when they're in the the convenience store above the gas station and it like goes into the guy's mouth mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like oh i don't want to be here what made you think to do that and man is it effective yeah he comforts she but there is a bit of an infantilization, I think, in his attitude, this, I'm going to teach you to breathe, he says. You know, mm-hmm. again, this sort of arrogance, I think, does come through just in his general attitude. He also declares that she has moved from grief to anxiety. It's not dangerous, just as your grief wasn't dangerous, he says, despite her feeling otherwise. She tries to have sex with him, but he refuses, saying she's using it as a distraction. And again, her inner turmoil is represented through shots of these thorny brambles with unsettling noises. Just a really cool shot with the shadows passing over it. But he says exposure. That's the only thing that really works. Everything else is just talk. You have to have the courage to stay in the situation that frightens you. And I thought this was kind of an interesting line as a horror fan, because to me, that is kind of what every horror movie is in its own way. It's exposure to some awful fear that helps you see it as defeatable. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. He wants her to make a list of things she's most afraid of. And I like this uh, line that she says, can't I just be afraid without a definite object? (laughs) It's a good tweet. Yeah, it applies. You don't even need the movie. That's just a good line. The next scene is is just this really incredible demonstration of the physical performance that Charlotte Gainsbourg puts in as she shakes and smashes her head against the toilet. It's just awful to watch. Yeah. Seemingly a suicide attempt, you know, or a few scenes prior, she says, well, I want to die, too. I don't want to keep experiencing this it just really sets my teeth on edge even if it's just like this seeking a new pain to distract from the grief you know even if she's not trying to kill herself and it's just like trying to get that endorphin rush from your body healing itself uh, is very scary to me (laughs) well the perversion of the self-preservation instinct and the idea that in this person's situation their brain is telling them the best thing to do at this time for my safety and sanity is to hurt myself is chilling because that's not how that's supposed to go. (laughs) (laughs) He pulls her back to the bed, having been awoken by the thumping, and she tries one more time to get him to have sex with her, and she succeeds this time, uh, although he is filled with regret afterward. Yeah. And he rightly says that a therapist should not do that. (laughs) You're like, yeah, that's... (laughs) You are correct. Should not have grief sex after a suicide attempt with your client, who is also your spouse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a classic scenario. I feel like a lot of them have to do that, but... Freud, famously. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) He presses her more to explore her fear. She said she feels afraid and exposed in the woods surrounding Eden. It's not quite at the top, but it's near it. Mm -hmm. And this is ironic, he says, because she's the one who always wanted to go. But she says everything there scares her. And this is, of course, a very primal fear. One of the core conflict types is man versus nature. And this goes back to even before we were humans, you know, just damn apes trying to last until the next morning. Mm -hmm. This is also where the first moment of sexuality and violence intertwine again. You know, there's the very, very opening. But she starts to incorporate it all into herself when she bites his nipple while they try to fool around. And he's like, that was too hard. (laughs) (laughs) This is 2756 is the time code for these uh, uh, scary faces in the, in the whipping past (laughs) uh, 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 trees. 
And in the commentary, he said that this scene was inspired by Solaris, um, one of many Tarkovsky references in this movie, to create the feeling of travel that is inspired by the uh, drive into Tokyo. And they start working on her expectations on the train, which apparently means Willem hypnotizing her. Boy, he's just got a great voice for it. This, like, slow narration. (laughs) Needs to do a guided meditation app. Yeah. And she's at the bridge at evening, and things are silent and dark as she makes her way through the mind forest towards their cabin. He tells her not to go inside, though. It's the outside that she's afraid of, so she has to lie down on top of all the plants in the grass outside. And, like you said, to her, this represents evil, so probably not the best suggestion for him to be like, you should just give yourself up to evil. But it's it's also an incredible looking scene. You know, this when she mm-hmm. actually melts into the green, again, more Tarkovsky influence where it looks like she's floating for a little while. And it just looks so lush and vibrant. Yeah. It's such a beautiful moment in the movie. Just incredibly well done. And interesting that to consort with evil in a natural setting is what so many women were accused of. That's like the the core, the root sin of a witch in the mm-hmm. 1600s was you went into the woods and had sex with Satan, <laughs> essentially. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's almost the idea that he, through this hypnosis, triggers the rest of what comes or unlocks it within her pushes her further to the edge however you want to look at it yeah and they they take a taxi from the train station and they hike the rest of the way into the woods with only mild hiccups like a nap and the ground feeling like burning to her Mm -hmm. while she rests he wanders into the woods and he sees a doe wowie but as he gets closer he sees that there is a stillborn fawn hanging half out of her kind of dislodging as she prances away very shocking (laughs) One of those unsettling images that just shows you nature don't give a fuck. Like mm-hmm. nature just exists. and It's it just is, hanging out. It's yeah. an obscene cavalcade of birth <laughs> and death. Yeah. <laughs> and sex and murder. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this leads us into chapter two. Chaos reigns. Yeah. She awakes and she finds him still in the clearing, laying there by himself. Again, I thought this was interesting that he is distant from her, even in they're both just laying there. He doesn't want to just lay down next to her. He goes mm. so far away. Oh, yeah. And they press on. Next stage, the bridge. After some extreme reticence, she does get onto the bridge. But when he encourages her to stay in her fear, she can't handle it, and she sprints forward without him. And the world seems to warp around her as she does, the intent of which, he said in the commentary, is a sarcastic nod to cognitive therapy's insistence that, quote, Thoughts are not reality and do not affect reality by having her anxiety spread to the environment that they're in. Mm-hmm. He walks at his own pace. He passes a foxhole that she mentioned in her hypnosis and the big dead tree. And he finally makes it to the cabin, finding her passed out inside, along with some Polaroids of Nick and her. And he looks at them glumly. And, you know, again, this sort of like he is kind of holding this in himself instead of expressing his, his grief. And acorns falling on the roof wake them up in the night. The first of nature's attack on them. (laughs) Just hurling corpses at you. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's as grim as it gets. (laughs) And uh, the second attack from nature is the absolutely disgusting ticks that he Mm -hmm. finds on his hand when he wakes up the next morning. Yeah. Boy, that was truly made me recoil. (laughs) Yeah, it feels like there's a series of steps in this chapter that are literally just meant to... Because we're so acculturated to thinking of nature as, oh, nature is symbolic of life, growth, birth, good, happy nature. Um, I think Lars here is just trying to remind you, no, it isn't. (laughs) Or that's not the version of nature I am presenting. Remember, literal bloodsuckers. 
Remember rot, ticks, (laughs) stillbirth, getting eaten alive. Remember, these are part of nature as well. Definitely. And they start the exposure therapy again for the day since he says that she cheated him. And he has her walk in the tall grass from one stone to another, which she does with great difficulty, but she she succeeds. Mm -hmm. And immediately collapses onto the stone just in time to see a baby bird fall from the nest coated in ants immediately trying to claim the body but before they can a hawk swoops down and carries it away tearing into it you know even even laying into this nature the the harmony doesn't even extend to the individuals within nature this birds will eat other birds ants (laughs) will try to eat the bird (laughs) yeah exactly there's no chaos reigns there is no there's no accord there's no peace (laughs) she breaks down crying about how she misses nick prompted by this display ostensibly And she says she became afraid the last time that they were here, and that's why she stopped writing. And we get the flashback. First interesting bit of information is the topic of the book she's working on, which hitherto unknown to us, was medieval genocide, which is uh, the killing of women and the torture and, and oppression of women. And she's working on this research when she hears loud crying from Nick. She searches around from him, the sobbing unceasing. Even when she finds him in the shed playing happily, the crying is still coming from all around her as the camera flies up to overlook the forest in its grandeur. Really unsettling and impactful scene. Cool bit of surrealism here. I I thought it was just really great stuff. I think as any parent knows, it's a horrible experience to have your baby crying and you can't get them to stop. Imagine if you couldn't get them to stop even when they stopped. Like you're looking at your baby and they're not crying and still (laughs) your baby is crying despite all logic. Like that is very upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also kind of plays an interesting counterpoint to the very beginning when we see that the baby monitor is muted. And so Mm -hmm. any crying that they would ordinarily hear is now uh, stifled. So it's kind of an interesting reversal of this. Mm Mm-hmm. And he, again, very patronizingly and rationally says, that was obviously your imagination. Because you got scared of that sound, you tied the emotional event to the place. Bingo, bango, bongo, slurp of wine, and she's finally had enough. That's why you're scared of nature. I have solved the case. Now get over it. Or like your grief should dissolve in the heat of my logic. Yeah, it's it's so funny. She tries to fight him. She knocks the wine away. And she is finally restrained by him. But she says, you shouldn't have come here. Uh, she again explicitly notes his arrogance. Not only applicable towards their relationship, but as you say, the idea of man as master of nature as well. That is mm. so not the case in, in this in this scenario. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Later that night, she speaks more on this a bit, saying that the acorns falling in this incident made her realize everything beautiful about Eden was perhaps hideous, and that she was surrounded by the cry of all things that are to die. That's what she was hearing. Mm-hmm. Nature is Satan's church, she says, and the wind his breath as it blows into the cabin. On his little, like, pyramid that he's drawn for her, Nice. he crosses out nature from the top and writes Satan, and then he crosses that out, too. Yeah, there's a, there's a little arc of him guessing at what <laughs> what's really bugging her. Which is funny, because, I mean, I would have just written, child died. <laughs> Case closed. But. Pretty big one. Pretty big one. Top of the pyramid. <laughs> yeah. But what he arrives at is, spoiler alert, you know, right before all things go to hell, he writes, the worst thing is herself. Uh, our own, what, uh, what we are capable of, our own human nature. And I exactly. think that's spot on. He finally cracks the case right before <laughs> he gets cracked. <laughs> 
While she sleeps, he looks at Nick's autopsy report, which he hadn't been able to bring himself to do, and had also kept it hidden from her. Taking that autonomy away from her doesn't even give her the choice to look at it or not. That might have given her some kind of closure. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But as he does, suddenly he's surrounded by falling acorns. Not only a fantastic shot, but indicative of the fact that, as we've been guessing, he is burying his emotions, but does feel surrounded by death as well. Right. And another Tarkovsky reference. Right. Yeah. All the the rain pouring and everything. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. She slept well and says she's actually happy he's here, that she loves him. Again, this switching back and forth, whatever she feels in the moment is the truth of... of, And she thinks it'll always be that way. Like she says, I'm cured. Can't you be happy for me? I'm fine again. And you're like, well, you're taking a fleeting moment and applying it to all future time. (laughs) I also like that in this moment, he goes, oh, I've actually been having some wild dreams. But now Mm -hmm. the shoe is on the other foot and she dismisses him saying, dreams have no place in modern psychology. (laughs) Right. Deal with your rationalism. This is your choice. Yeah. I doubt Lars would agree with the idea that dreams are not relevant. I think (laughs) he's fascinated by dreams. Yeah. Also, shoes on the other foot. Watch your (laughs) face. Pretty triggering. (laughs) I apologize to all of the the children with shoes on the wrong feet. Exactly. (laughs) She leads the way to the foxhole and she shows him, like you said, hey, I'm well again. She wanders across the bridge and in the river and all around. And he's stunned. And like you said, why can't you just be happy for me? And it's interesting to me that he sees signs of life here, the rustling of the brush, and the fear has kind of transferred to him. He's extremely tense as he wanders over, and he finds this fox that snaps at him, guts torn out, and then the fox speaks. Chaos reigns. And this moment has become kind of a meme, or certainly at least one of the more well-known parts of this movie, and maybe even one of the more well-known parts of Von Trier's filmography. But honestly, in the dreamlike context of this movie, I feel like it really, really works, and it looks pretty dang good. Yeah, and the fox is specifically eating itself. It's Mm -hmm. eating its own guts. So uh, it's a moment of the person that we have been thinking of as insane saying no i'm fine and the person who thought of themselves as sane (laughs) having reality splinter around them it's also a moment of nature eating itself which of course highlights as directly as possible yeah nature is you know life is death and birth is rot Mm -hmm. and uh entropy baby and the cherry on top is you know, it's, I think it's it's really where the movie tips the theme. He could have just said Satan is king, <laughs> you know, <laughs> equally well. Chaos Reigns is a little more poetic, but uh, you uh, a good filmmaker or a good playwright can put the moral of the story in the mouth of a character, or a dead fox in this case, <laughs> without it seeming clunky. And I think Von Trier pulls that off here. It's poetic and elegant, but at the same time, it's like, if you didn't figure out the themes of the movie yet, Here's a very clear encapsulation of sure. what we're talking about. Doesn't get more explicit than that. Yeah. Chapter three, despair, parentheses, genocide. Mm-hmm. It starts to pour on he, uh, Tarkovsky rain that starts on one side. He specifically was like, well, if we're going to have him standing in the rain outside, it's got to be this, he said in the commentary. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he heads back to Eden. 
and he hears something in the attic. He braves the rain to get a ladder, and he clambers up, metaphorically climbing into her brain, as it were. Mm -hmm. And he finds hung-up pictures from her research, depicting the torture and killing of women and a constellation map, which the camera focuses on the three beggars, a fox, crow, and deer, labeled with the same names as the toys from the prologue and also the chapters Grief, Pain, and Despair. He flips through her notes, which discuss the emergence of witchcraft as a lifestyle versus witchcraft as a religion, further confused among everyday people by sensationalized and shallow depictions in accounts. And the handwriting degenerates as it starts to focus on witches' supposed relationship with the devil and the way that they were tortured to determine the fate of the accused before becoming illegible. And outside, the storm knocks down a tree really great kind of like spooky <laughs> the handwriting degenerating i was like oh <laughs> yeah it's uh, if you're just watching it on the surface level you get the idea of oh this person is mentally unwell and they have been for far longer like before the child died she was mentally unwell because yeah. this was stuff she wrote the when she was visiting even pre previously but also layered in is sort of an understanding of the nature of her obsessions and where they're coming from like spoiler alert uh, she knew the child was going to jump out the window. She let the child die. And I think I've always interpreted that as sort of an obsession around the idea of fornication is natural because we see moments where she wants to distract herself by having sex with her husband. Fornication is natural, but it's also obscene. And humans, or because of our human, like humanness has made it obscene in some contexts. And fornication is also part of the cycle of death and rot. So in that way, it becomes sort of tainted by that. And she becomes obsessed with the idea that genitals are evil in almost a puritanical way. And there's moments in the film where she seems to be horrified by that, horrified that humans would ever do that to women but then there's also these moments where it flips and she inhabits that point of view and feels no women are the root of all evil my vagina is horrible and must be destroyed and your dick and i always interpreted it as and what is the combination of vagina and penis a child so what can a child be but evil like there you, you go know, the antichrist <laughs> exactly like all children are the antichrist because they were born of man and woman and men and women are evil really we should just burn it all down <laughs> like clean slate i think you're absolutely spot on you know the interesting catch-22 to me about her sexuality is that the pleasure is an antiseptic that relieves her of the pain she feels but the sexual activity reminds her of the cause of that pain. And these contradictions being forced to be held in conjunction, I think, really work to explain why the movie plays out the way that it does. It's not only the definition of a lack of rationality, but it's, an ex it's a cycle that explains why, in Von Trier's view or the view of this film, rationality is irrational. How can you say that no, we should all be calm and think right and keep our head clear because sanity will prevail <laughs> and order is the natural way. When you look around and see that to live, we must die. To kill, we must be born. Like, rot gives birth to new growth. Irrationality, it's almost an argument for irrationality is the order of the day. Sure. So therefore, she is living truer to the cosmic reality by being insane from mm -hmm. our point of view by acting irrationally. Yeah, I think, uh, again, I feel like I really keep leaning on this Vonnegut comparisons, but mm -hmm. in Mother Night, when they talk about sort of the, um, the dilemma between absurdism and nihilism and the way that 
it could kind of go either way when you're brought down to your lowest point like this. Mm-hmm. I think that Von Trier is kind of being like this, this to me feels kind of absurdist in a way that's like the only meaning you can get is from just like embracing the evil of what you're right. doing. Yeah. And therefore it is more sane to act on your base instincts, whatever right. they may be, even if they're fleeting and contradictory, it doesn't have to make sense because nothing makes sense. And <laughs> what is scarier? I think that's why it's one of my top horror films is what is scarier than actually embracing the truth that none of this might matter or mean anything. Your greatest day might be hollow or the idea of love might be beside the point. Yeah. These are scary things to (laughs) contemplate because they might be true. (laughs) Definitely. He wants to do one more role-playing exercise. He's all the thoughts that cause her fear and she's rational thinking. I'm nature, he says, and I want to hurt you as much as I can. I want to kill you. I'm more than just greenery. I'm the nature of all human beings. And she begins to catch on. She says that that kind of nature is what makes us commit evil deeds against women. But that same evil nature controls women's bodies too. It's right there in my books, she says. Mm -hmm. And he's stunned. He says, you were supposed to be critical of these texts. That's the whole crux of your thesis. But now you're embracing it. What's the deal? And she tells him to just forget it. One of the special features... The included an interview with a producer, and she said that she feels this movie is about depicting the way women are constantly inundated with messaging about how evil and terrible they are, and then this guilt drives her to internalize it. And I think that this is the scene where it's really driven home that that's what's happening here, Mm -hmm. or at least for that interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that night, they're having sex, and she wants him to hit her, which he declines to do. And she says, if you don't hit so that it hurts, you don't love me. And he says, well, if that's the standard, I don't love you. (laughs) So she gets off. She stalks out into the night and she masturbates at the foot of a tree while the sounds of nature are both surrounding and high in the mix, which I thought was very well done. Now, suddenly she's joined by he who starts slapping her. And she encourages this, and mid-coitus starts talking about the sisters from Radisbon who could start a hailstorm. And I did a little digging and found Radisbon's history of witchcraft described in the Malus Maleficarum Part 2, Quatrain 1, Chapter 4. George, what's Part 2, Quatrain 1, Chapter 4 of the Malus Maleficarum about, I hear you asking? Well, I'm glad you asked, because this section of the book is, uh, which the book is also called The Hammer of Witches, Mm -hmm. describes the exact mechanisms of how these filthy and degenerate witches would have sex with demons. One of the many specifics, including the location being out amongst nature, but also her outfit later where she's nude to the navel is something specifically mentioned in the book as well. And uh, the camera climbs up Willem's back as the sound fades, becoming just a drone, again, sort of using this sexuality to leave the cruelty of nature behind. But then it pulls out, and it reveals that the roots are now intertwined with a bunch of arms. Uh, Not his and hers, though, which are grabbing the roots and Willem's butt, respectively. (laughs) Just the uh, visualization of history is nothing but a pile of dead bodies, so we're built upon it. That's right. That's the ground that these trees are built on, is is this uh, pile of corpses. Yeah. That night, while trying to convince her that the witch hunts were just an obsession, he says that anxiety is like hypnotism. It can't trick you into doing something that's actually against your nature. And I'm not so sure about that. And I think that the movie isn't so sure about that either. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. She finds the autopsy report while making a fire, and he points out that while it has no bearing on the case, apparently there was a slight deformity in Nick's feet. And uh, then he shows her a picture where his shoes are wrong, and she says, oh, it must have been a slip of the mind that day, but Rome wasn't deformed in a day. And uh, as always, he kind of frames this as though he's just her psychologist and not also Nick's father, Mm -hmm. who, if he had been around, could have noticed that his shoes were on wrong on a consistent basis, Mm. which also sounds hella painful. Yeah. And is sort of a Munchausen by proxy thing. Yeah. Yeah. He walks out into the fog and into the shed where he puts two and two together himself with a few more photos. And this is where he adds me in quotes to the top of the pyramid. And I'm thinking maybe abandonment should be somewhere on that list too, (laughs) because Mm. she comes in yelling about how he's going to leave her. She bonks him on the head and forces herself on him. And in the commentary, he pointed out this cool little trick where he's like, this is a Hitchcock trick that I stole, where there's actually a sound that plays before she enters the scene so that we're alert. Ah, yeah. There's, or it's like um, in Hereditary, there's that moment where the old naked people invade the house. <laughs> and if you listen very carefully, you can hear things in the previous sequence before you're aware that they're a component, like windows slowly opening and doors opening. So wow. like they they foreshadow just very subtly in the soundtrack that something's out there. It's cool. I, it's really it's cool a great stuff. technique. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he says that he loves her. She says she doesn't believe him. She hops off. She grabs a piece of wood, potentially the same one that Nick had been playing with, mm-hmm. and uh, she smashes his junk. That's right. In... The special features, I have never laughed like this before, where (laughs) they replay this scene in its entirety, Mm -hmm. and then it just cuts to a really close-up on Charlotte Gainsbourg's face, and she goes, I love violence in films. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, you'd have to to do this movie. That's amazing. It really made me laugh. And he passes out, as you might expect, but is still hard, so she masturbates him, and he orgasms blood all over her. Yep. Gross. Yep. She then grabs a grindstone and a drill, a hand drill, I might add, so not even the speed of a power drill, and she drills right through his damn leg and attaches it, attaches the millstone, before tossing the wrench under the cabin. And for me, personally, if you're worried about someone leaving you, if this isn't the number one worst way to handle it, it's gotta be top five. Worse than chaining them to something. Like, worse than Black Snake Moan. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm going to drill through your leg and attach a rock to it. Amazing. Now, as she walks, uh, like I said, she's wearing this shirt but no bottoms from when she was still atop him. And the camera lingers with framing highlighting both the wrench and her vagina. I think drawing a parallel to what she'd been reading in the Malleus Maleficarum about this sort of being an extension of her womanhood. She is fully a witch now, which is both internalized self-hate and empowerment. Mm. The, 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 the whole movie is about contradictory elements because the movie is about the sanity of insanity. You know, the things that she is accepting as evil about her own nature are also empowering to her. It's resonates with that Herzog quote that I don't hate the death and chaos. I love it, but I love it against my better judgment. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to. That's the point. <laughs> mm, yeah. He finally wakes up hyperventilating and in agony. And he manages to drag himself all the way to the foxhole in an effort to hide. Very impressive. It doesn't even seem, I will say one way that it is 
a failed horror movie is <laughs> I would think a more traditional horror movie would focus a lot more on how much his penis hurts. <laughs> he seems pretty all right. He's yeah. not he's not that discombobulated by all the body modification that just happened to him. Oh, I think again it's that like hyper focus on rationality where he's like, I'm not even going to react to the agony that's happening because I need to get out of here. That's the next step. Oh, I have to resolve this stone in my leg issue now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now he gets into this foxhole. He finds a half-buried crow there. And I thought it was funny that he's the one who uncovers it, kind of sinking his own ship here. Like, what is this? What's <laughs> yeah. that? I better explore. Oh, shit, it's an <laughs> alarm. I'm trying to hide right now. This is not good. <laughs> yeah, uh, really bad move. But he uncovers this crow. It starts to breathe again, starts cawing in distress, which reveals his position to her. And then he just tries to pound it into dust, should have just left it, dude. This kind of like grotesque humor, very dreamlike. It refuses to die. Mm-hmm. It, it was it was a very interesting scene. I also liked seeing it like get shot in the behind the scenes stuff where like it's just like uh like a cutout on the side and Willem Dafoe is like hanging out halfway. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a funny cool. look. Now she does find him. She jabs at him with the shovel, but it causes a rock to fall in front of the den. And so she starts digging in from the top instead and attacks him when he's revealed. Chapter four, The Three Beggars. Uh, No parentheses this time, but the three, I noticed, was written over something that then got erased. I don't know if that means Mm. anything. I was like, maybe that's significant. Maybe not. Yeah. (laughs) Night has fallen, and he's buried in this fox den when she starts to become lucid and go, oh, dang, maybe I overreacted. (laughs) I believe that's a direct quote, right? Yeah. She looks at camera and goes, that was a bit much. (laughs) Yeah, um, she really, it's its a weird monologue as she uncovers him. <laughs> well, because that's the thing. She's not like a horror monster that just goes off the deep end and stays off the deep end. It's intermixed with moments of what we would call lucidity, yeah. where she feels guilt for what she's done. She feels the full depth of guilt for having let her child die or arguably helped kill her child at the same time that she also feels empowered by it. It, it goes back and forth and back and forth. It's yeah. really fascinating. It really is. And uh, in this moment, she can't find the wrench to undo his foot. You know, there's uh, an element of some things you can't undo. Even though she just hit it. Yeah. <laughs> which is bizarre. That's It's like she's she's totally just flying by the seat of her pants at this point, or her pantslessness. Um, <laughs> just mom- living moment to moment. I throw the wrench over there. I forget that it exists. I don't yeah. know. Well, it was it like now. all the way under the house too. So yeah. she like couldn't have gotten at it anyway. Yeah. She drags him back to the cabin. And when he asks if she wanted to kill him, she says, not yet because the three beggars haven't arrived yet. But when the three beggars arrive, someone must die. And uh, it's like, Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> and this is sort of one uh, would the movie makes the leap into actual, Maybe there is magic. Maybe there is witchcraft because now a prophecy is about to come true. Yeah. I also do think that there, you know, if you kind of look at what are the three beggars, she might be saying like, you're not at my level, so you can't die yet. You felt grief and you felt pain, but you haven't reached despair, which was the last of the three beggars. Right. Sure. She quotes the book again about women and their diabolical falseness before grabbing some scissors and having a flashback 
that reveals she actually did see the sun climbing up and going out, but she let it happen and cuts her own clitoris off as more self-flagellation. Just a huge pit in my stomach the whole time. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's, like we said, so direct. Literally, head on. Like, the ca- like the camera is just right there. It cuts to, as she's, like, doing the action, it cuts to an even closer shot, which I was like, damn, Lars. <laughs> All right, Lars. <laughs> we get it. But it uh, it's certainly effective, and her scream catches the attention of a doe outside. Mm-hmm. And she heads back out into nature, and a hailstorm begins, as you said, calling back to her comments about these sisters of Radisbon, and he catching a glimpse of the stars, realizes that there are no constellations as the three beggars, right before in strides a doe and a fox, joined by a crow that that he releases from under the cabin by breaking a floorboard. This dude just cannot help freeing birds from the perils of death. And creating, yeah, bringing, bringing into existence the very things that he said. That's all nonsense. Yeah. Your thoughts can't affect reality. Well, either they are, or this is really happening, which means magic is real. So. Yeah, which he would also certainly uh, push yeah, back against exactly. as the rationalist. Luckily, question mark uh, for him, <laughs> uh, the wrench is right there as well. But she comes to and sees him trying to get away, leading her to freak out and attack him with the scissors. He throws the scissors to the side, though, and he gets the grindstone off, and then he chokes her to death. The way this is shot calls back to the anxiety attack when she was sure she was dying, which I thought was really interesting. And Lars said that this is meant for him to be taking over the anxiety. I agree. And it's more, it's him finally admitting to himself, I am not rational. I am an animal. I do have that human nature inside me. And she finally pushed me far enough that I'm going to let it out and apply it to take a life and of course he will never he'll never be the same again like the mask is off right yeah he can never pretend oh i'm just the thinking machine i'm above (laughs) it all being very rational um no you're not because she was fully subdued you could have disabled her in some way you chose to keep choking her for a long time till she was dead because you wanted to because she hurt you so you wanted to hurt her back that's animal nature my man (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it becomes clear that when push comes to shove, the precious illusion of civilization and how far we've come since the witch hammer Mm -hmm. flies out the window, and it reveals the evil in his own nature, as you say. He puts her in the giant pile of brush outside, lights it on fire, and he starts limping down the path. Burns a witch, literally. Literally. (laughs) He passes the big dead tree, and suddenly the nude corpses of dozens of women fade into view, coating the floor of the forest, all the women nature has killed. Very Hieronymus Bosch. Really cool looking scene. Mm-hmm. We get our epilogue here. And the same Italian music from the beginning, back to black and white. It's uh, Handel doing his aria. And um, he is still limping back. He drops down to rest. He finds some berries to eat for sustenance. But suddenly he looks over and he sees the three beggars staring back at him, glowing and semi-transparent. He stands up. He looks over the hill and he sees hundreds of women with blurred out faces approaching him. Now, there's certainly a lot to be read into this. One thing that I thought of in this moment that I hadn't seen talked anywhere else is I was like, I thought he like died from the berries and this was like another victim of nature. He's just going to rot there, lie there and rot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought that he like that this was another thing where it's like, oh, he's like, oh, I need food. This is, again, he's leaning into his lack of thinking. He doesn't think, oh, these berries could be poisonous now. He's mask off and uh, and he, he eats them and, and nature claims another one. <laughs> Nate, got you, bitch. <laughs> I poisoned you. Um, so he just 
takes his place among the ranks of the faceless yeah. dead. Yeah. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that, you know, in the Bible, you start nude in paradise and you're cast out. Here, clothed people head towards Eden only to be stripped of their pride and killed by nature. So it's kind of a really interesting reversal of the, the typical understanding of Eden. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, the, the last thing we see is it's dedicated to Andre Tarkovsky. This makes sense with his rewatching The Mirror uh, right before shooting. He made everyone else watch it as well. And so much of the imagery calls back to it. So, I mean, we've called it out the whole way. The fire we just saw is also very much like The Mirror. The way the walking in the field is shot, the dreamlike quality in general, its influence is not hidden. And he said that he wanted to celebrate the mood of his films, which I think he successfully does. Achieved a thousandfold, yeah. (laughs) So now I figure we can start getting into our uh, just overall interpretations of the the generalness of it. For me, this is kind of like an any port in a storm kind of thing. Grief and depression can be maddening. It makes people cling to stuff that would have shocked them previously, but gives them relief now. In this instance, the thought that medieval practices were correct in combating the devil. And uh, as far as this movie is concerned, women are the victim of nature twice over. Once by bringing things into this world just to die, a la the acorns, and then again by man's nature to use this as justification to do evil against women. Even as he claims otherwise, his actions indicate that this is his nature. Mm-hmm. One of the interviews in the special features was a misogyny researcher for this movie, and she talks about how women are depicted as a pure piece of nature governed by it through instinct and conception, and classically the menstruation cycle is linked spiritually to the moon. the tides of the moon. Right. And it's not something that they decide to do and proof of their uncontrollable nature, she said. And to me, this could be part of not even just the depression after the sun dies, I feel like there could also be some like postpartum depression that's going on. You know, the the shoes and the watching him go both feel like they could be related to that, especially since it would be something yet again uncontrollable by women, but affecting them alone by its very nature. So that's just kind of where I'm at in terms of like looking at it from a, a three thousand foot perspective. Uh, mm-hmm. Any any thoughts on on your interpretation of the, of this movie? I mean, I think we've come out with most of it along the way, but yeah, I just think it's a rational argument for irrationality, and I think it's very telling that it was a long, slow descent. It wasn't uh, that this child died and her mind snapped, Mm. because we get the impression that basically working on this thesis and exposing her to the entire legacy of human cruelty to women, both empowered and demeaned her. It to the point where she started, let's say, experimenting with torturing <laughs> her own son. Yeah. Escalating to the point of letting him die at a moment of orgasm, which, <laughs> aside from the sheer serendipity of it, just you can't. I don't know that you could construct a scenario that would more fuse hate and pain and grief with life and birth and the good feelings we get from sex and the human impulse to carry on. It's just a very great, It it's fitting that the chapter titles are like on a chalkboard because I do yeah. think a lot of Lars's stuff is very instructional. And this, as much as he wants to protest and say, I don't know what it's about. <laughs> you know what it's about. It's very clear. It's very clear what it's about. The Coen brothers also love to say, oh, uh, we just wrote it line to line. Whatever happened, happened. The characters moved themselves. And you're like, that's, it's not possible. 
that you arrived at such an instructive, clear metaphor. But regardless, <laughs> I do think it's it's great. It's uh, it's my favorite kind of thing like this, which is to say. It's so clear to me what he represents. It's so clear to me what she represents. They are not, uh, it's not a biopic. They are not complex characters with random eccentricities or oddities. He (laughs) is rationality and she is irrationality. And it's amazing to me that we get to a point where he literally says, now you're going to play rationality (laughs) because the opposite is true. Yeah, it it takes two timeless ideas, forces them into a room together, and just lets them bank off each other until they reach a point of no return. Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. It's 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 almost a thought experiment of a film. Yeah. And That's a cool uh, way to look at it. I think I'll spend my whole life wondering who's right. <laughs> <laughs> because certainly I live day to day, and I think most people around me do, I'm more he. I I live day to day trying to take actions that imply that it's possible to defeat entropy. If we all work together one day, we'll have world peace or what have you. Order will reign. Mm -hmm. In my heart of hearts, I think I know that that's a lie. (laughs) Sure. It's it's interesting, though, that it could be like an aspirational lie. You know, it's something to work towards. Because I also don't believe, I think it's depression speaking largely when you think, oh, well, then give up. Everything is entropy is all there is. No, there's both. There's both. You're still here in the meantime. (laughs) Exactly. You're not dead yet. You have to fill this time with things. And it's nice to have roads and fire departments and get togethers with your friends. And yet there's also people out there getting their clitorises cut off against their will. And both are true. Boy, there's a lot of stuff in the world. and There's a (laughs) lot of facets to living. And any film or story that tries to encapsulate all of that in its entirety until the point where you can feel the storyteller's brain break and it just becomes an abstraction is a masterpiece to me. And I think this stands among those. Yeah. Lars does say in the special features, he explicitly said... I think it is ridiculous to say women are evil and have a connection with Satan that men do not. And he points out that he did Breaking the Waves, but doesn't believe that there will be bells in the sky or that you can fuck your way to heaven. He said, I just wanted to open up a conversation about nature, especially as a highly atheistic person. This was more provocation to myself by using this theme. The quote at the end of the interview was, it would be ridiculous to say that women are more evil than men, but on the other hand, I wouldn't agree to the opposite, that men are more evil than women. And I think that that is a sort of representative of how he sees himself in both of these characters. I think it is easy to see ourselves in both of these characters. It's more about our two warring sides than uh, two external forces. We contain multitudes. Nature is nature. Within nature, there is birth and death and hate and love. Yeah, it's all jumbled up together. And and as Vonnegut would say, the more I interrogate myself, the more I seem to become piles of undifferentiated (laughs) mush. I am a pacifist. I am a humanitarian and so on. But like, what do these things mean and how do we balance them against? I am also an animal. You know, Vonnegut cheated on his wife. (laughs) Yeah. So, it's like uh, I'll hurt people for the quote unquote like paltry reward of physical gratification, but uh, I'll also write some of the most beautiful arguments for peace that have ever been written. Yeah. Yeah, it's both. It is what it is, brother. It's all complicated. (laughs) It's all a mess. If you're lucky enough to live long enough, you will contain contradictions within yourself as nature itself does. And I think that that is a great segue into our final portion of the episode, Michael, where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, 
but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. <laughs> and I'll let you start. Well, I'll just say I'd, I think I, rec- I had also entertained the idea of the Dogtown murders, which I uh, is also a, I'm, I'm, I say, I'm sorry, Dogville is a Lars von Trier movie. I've got von Trier on the mind. <laughs> is it? Snowtown it's murders. The Snowtown right? murders. The Snowtown murders. Thank you. That was the other one I was going to go for because I think that movie makes me the most upset of even more so than Antichrist <laughs> because there is that element of Antichrist that feels like an essay or an instructional pamphlet, whereas uh, the Snowtown murders is straight up. Oh, it's also based on a true story. So it's it's just an unflinching depiction of some horrible shit that happened, <laughs> which is very horrifying to me. So, but I think that by its very nature is you could argue it's exploitative i mean you're taking people's real suffering and turning it into a ooh let's all get spooked out by this i would say antichrist is the greatest uh, if i have to say this antichrist is the greatest horror film of all time because there is no greater horror than than entropy than the idea that entropy and irrationality defeat order and and peaceableness and i think antichrist more than any other and i do believe this more than any other film i've seen hits that nail on the head as clearly as it can be told without just being pedantic it is still an engaging and bewildering ride through a haunted house but at the end of the experience you get a very cohesive understanding and feeling of exactly what Trier set out to do, which is to say, the simplest way to say it is, what if Satan made all this? Not God, Satan made all this. That's the scariest thing there is. <laughs> the scary, I think the <laughs> scariest possible thought is uh, that I'll die and go to hell. You know, <laughs> that, that the, an eternity of, of negative vibes versus an eternity <laughs> of positive vibes. Sure. So the idea that we're already in hell that nature seethes with entropy and hatred and nature wants you dead and it's just a random aberration that you're even alive at all. You can't get much scarier than that. That's definitely scarier than Freddy Krueger. You know, <laughs> He only affects you in your dreams. Yeah. Or it's scarier than uh, anything that's tangible because it's the very essence of intangible chaos. It's that what if everything I think is good or positive is wrong and everything that I think is negative and sad is the truth. I don't know that you can get more fundamentally scared than that. Yeah. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is so impactful, but it is also not, I mean, it, like we said, it's not super subtle, but it's also not holding your hand. You know, it is unflinching. It's a movie that operates under the belief that you are an adult you can handle this. And I think it is rewarding for those who are willing to put the effort in. Mm-hmm. I think that this, like you say, thought experiment of a film is a very interesting thought experiment, forcing you to consider this, this idea of, well, what if all of the structures that I hold dear are incorrect? That kind of impact is something that can only be achieved by, by true art, I think. Yeah. And this pulls together so many incredible things you know it's not just this metaphor and instruction that he's he's trying to achieve the performances are outrageous right. the the way that it looks is so good it pulls together 
so many things that I am already a fan of. You know, we've talked about Herzog, we've talked about Tarkovsky, we've talked about Vonnegut. All these things pull together in a very cohesive way mm-hmm. that that feels like it is a conversation with us as an audience. It feels like an example of what movies really can be besides just entertainment. It feels intense as you're watching it. It engages you on the surface level where it should as a horror movie. It fucks you up. It haunts you. It stays with you. It's got that Requiem for a Dream quality, and I think even more so, where people who have seen Antichrist, if you mention this film, go... Oh yeah. Ooh, <laughs> Antichrist. Like that stays with you. And it I don't think there's a greater like compliment than a piece of art stayed with me. And it's not just because it's shockingly violent. I see shocking violence constantly. I you know, dread or any seven movie. o'clock news, baby. Exactly. And it doesn't necessarily haunt me. The ability to haunt me is uh quite an accomplishment. And Antichrist Definitely. is haunting. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that there's any doubt that Lars earned his uh, provocateur accolades, but right. uh, this movie is so much more than that. I also, one last little thing is just that I thought it was very interesting uh, for Lars in behind-the-scenes stuff. He seemed very willing to interrogate his own beliefs, you know? Many times he was like, this is what I'm operating with as the thesis at this point, but I could be wrong. <laughs> like, right. that to me, that willingness to uh, change, I think, speaks very highly of him and also just the fact that that this might just be a conversation and not an endorsement of of what's in it i, I think that uh that he does a he does just a spectacular job and frankly i'm excited to check out more of his work because the, the two movies that i've seen have just been fantastic so there you go best horror movie ever made <laughs> that's right uh until i see melancholia and then maybe i'll change there you go <laughs> Uh, Michael, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was an absolute blast. Please tell the people where they can check out your work. Well, thank you for the fabulous conversation, George. Been great to be here. If you like my the cut of my jib and you want to hear more from me, please, please head on over to patreon.com slash smallbeans, where you can find a whole host of podcasts that I run with my pals. I mean, we have one called that seems appropriate called Tales from the Pit on grief, depression, addiction, and recovery. But we also do the basics. We have a video games podcast. We have a films podcast. We actually have multiple film podcasts. I'm doing a great show now with a buddy where we compare episodes of Futurama and episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation. So oh, wow. you're classic nerd fodder. Sure. <laughs> but we go beyond that as well. So check us out. We do whatever we want. And... Uh, that's patreon.com slash small beans. Hell yeah. And uh, yeah. socials? Socials on Twitter. Twitter's my only real one. I'm at swaim underscore corp. There you go. As far as my plugs, I am similarly mostly only on Twitter. Uh, that handle is LittleHorrorPHL. But if you want to try other places, that would be the handle. So Instagram, I'm not on Facebook anymore, so don't try there. But uh, but yeah, and if we also have a Patreon if you want to check out bonus episodes of the show. Just a couple bucks a month, and um, it, it really helps out because it's just, it's just me doing this. So it's a lot of work. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I know it, brother. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's all really great. Uh, a lot of fun. We've even done uh, a Vonnegut episode where uh, we discussed his biography and uh, my getting into it. And then uh, also read Epicac. And uh, yeah, just all kinds of fun stuff. We just also recorded an episode about Control 2019. So, you know, it's video games and stuff as well uh, on the bonus episodes. Very fun stuff. Great game. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So uh, check that out. And uh, that's it for me. Thanks, everyone. Thanks Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye.